0: You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. Hey, welcome to another episode of Real Investor Radio. I'm Craig Fuhr with my awesome co-host, Jack Bevere. Hey. Hey, man. We got a lot to talk about today, so why don't we just jump in? I've been doing uh, quite a bit of research over the last few days on iBuyer's. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, we'll talk about uh, what that is. I'm sure most of the people listening know what iBuyers buyers are but uh, we'll discuss that quickly but man that's an interesting business model yeah
1: I'm uh, I'm biased I've been a, uh, I'm a I've been an iBuyer buyer hater for for quite some time even before they went public so I'm uh, looking forward to, to talking about
0: that and, and kind of giving an update on where they're at. We're gonna have some fun with this one So uh, briefly, what is an iBuyer? buyer? Um, do you want to go into that real quick, or uh, I have a I have a sort of a packed yeah, pat, uh the, the, the small definition here for uh, for those of you listening who don't know what an eye buyer is, it's basically a, a real estate company that's been funded by you know, hedge fund capital, Wall Street capital, yeah, Um, that they use algorithms and technology to buy and sell real estate quickly on a very large-scale basis. Um, The model was first introduced to the U.S. market in 2014 by Opendoor. They happen to be the largest iBuying company by far. Um, And it's all basically um, uh, very fast, easy offers for sellers um, based on uh, what they call an AVM, an automated valuation model, um, these people, these companies, are basically institutional flippers. They are, hmm. for lack of a better word, big wholesalers, um, and that comes from green residential. Um, so, how do they make their money? What's the business model for these guys? They they basically make money in three ways: service fees. Uh, they're generally paid by the seller, much like an agent's commission, where there's really no agent here. So, those service fees from the Buyer companies can range anywhere between five and ten percent. They also, second way they make money is on their closing fees, essentially title insurance, loan fees, and other ancillary services that they might provide, if any. But uh, generally, those fees are around two and a half percent. Uh, plus or minus, and then and then finally, the biggest way that they they try to make money is on the resale margin, and that's the difference between obviously what they pay, the fix up of the house if there's any, generally fairly light, and that could be anywhere between four and twelve percent. If you add all of those up, doesn't look like a bad business model, right? What they don't talk about a lot is sort of all of the baked-in costs uh, that they have uh, to run the business, and so want to talk about that today. And what are your thoughts, Jack, on on the business model in general?
1: Yeah, so I think on you know, on paper it sounds like you know a very conceivable business model, uh, <clears throat> especially when the idea was first. You know, uh, pitched back in 2015, there was a lot of home price appreciation. There were a lot of sellers who were interested in selling. The prices were good, and I think that those. I think that the the folks who funded those models did so in the right markets, which tend to be the Sun Belt, tend to be houses that are built uh, of newer vintage because the rehabs are frankly easier to do at scale. Um, but the thing that I've always, you know, the 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 core thing that I've always struggled with is that my experience has been that scaling a flipping business gets harder and harder and harder as you scale. The further that the entrepreneur gets from the street, the more difficult it is. uh, And the the harder it is to institutionalize the acquisition side, the harder it is to institutionalize the, the rehab side. And if you, if, if an entrepreneur can't who is making all the d- business decisions, right? The business owner, right, is having a difficult. Or uh, the further you get from that from that owner of the of the business to the street, the more slack you know goes into the system. The more mistakes are made. And so my experience has been that you know we, we've and we've tried. Are you sure <laughs> yeah, you have. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think we probably got up to flipping, you know, a hundred houses a year, and we know a bunch of other peers, particularly in our in our mastermind, yep. uh, that uh, that do flip at higher volumes than that in a lot of the markets where the iBuyers buyers exist. Um, but it's 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 real, it's really tough to to
0: institutionalize and um, create a business model out of that that is fluid the whole way through. So. Um, companies that we're talking about here obviously are like the Open Door, OfferPad, Zillow, Redfin, Knock, um, companies like that. Uh, you, you mentioned the markets that they're in. So top top ten markets for iBuyers buyers right now. No surprise: Atlanta, Georgia; San Antonio, Texas; Charlotte, North Carolina; Jacksonville; Phoenix; Dallas, Fort Worth; Orlando; Las Vegas; Houston; and Tampa. I would assume that you know. Those markets well because you guys do a lot of lending in those markets, correct?
1: Yeah, they've been fantastic markets. Again, a lot of like newer vintage houses, a lot of home price appreciation from 2012 to, to today, especially in the past couple of years. Yeah, anybody
0: can make money in those markets, right? Right.
1: You one would one would think, right? <laughs> um, and yet, and yet we have seen that i buyers have cons- the one thing that they all have in common is that they have always they all have
0: always lost money. Every quarter. Well, let's talk about that real quick. So, from 2017 to 2021, let's just talk about Zillow. Uh, total revenue went from anywhere between about one billion all the way up to about 2.2 billion dollars. Yet, in the um, all of the iBuyers posted major losses in in 2022. Um, Open Door sold more homes than Zillow and Offerpad combined in 2019 to 2022. Yet they've all, every one of them, has reported significant losses on, you know, billions of dollars of revenue.
1: Yeah. So, so like, on an individual transaction, they've made money. But the problem is that when you overlay... Uh, and and by the way, and I would argue in large part due to the home price appreciation, not sure. necessarily due to them like buying extremely well, right? Like their 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 pitch is not, hey, we're going to buy at a deep discount, right? right. Their pitch is we're going to buy pretty close to retail, add a little bit of value, but but the kitchen and bath, paint and carpet rehabs that we're going to do are going to be very value add relative to the uh, to the money that we're spending on the rehab, and so we're going to create we're going to create a spread there. It, that, that idea just flies in the face of everything that I've experienced over the past five years, which is that kitchen and bath paint and carpet rehabs don't have any margin. And so that the, this, this idea that like the main street entrepreneur can't make those deals work. And yet at volume, wall street's going to figure it out. I just, I, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any, doesn't make common sense to me. Like the, the, you know the mainstream entrepreneur who's looking to do three, four deals a year, who's not paying himself for his for for his acquisition side, who's networking with real estate agents, literally maybe even doing door knocking, direct mail. These are things where you may be able to cr- produce a cost of acquisition of a deal, you know, as low, you know, in the, in the five to seven grand range. You know, sure. kind of your primary markets, maybe that's close to ten to fifteen grand. Your tertiary markets a little bit less than that, with maybe like bespoke. Uh, direct mail lists like probate and estate you can get that down to just a couple grand but they're not scalable so like you're going to make it up in volume but you've only got you know it only cost me 5 grand to do a deal and i'm going to go gc the thing myself i'm probably also the real estate agent if i'm a, if i'm a, if i'm a full-time flipper i've got a real estate agent on staff like and you're going to, you're going to beat me because how, like, how are you going to beat me? Like the arrogance of it is really kind of what like gets me fired up about it that I just don't see where in that, where in that equation, you're going to spend so much money on marketing that your cost of acquisition is going to be, is going to come down from my five grand to what,
0: you know, for, you know, and and that's going to be the difference in your business model. We often like to talk about, um, the large institutional, uh, companies that are in the space as sort of, the dumbest guys in the room. We've talked about that on previous episodes where, you know, you, you roll up to the courthouse and you see guys with, with uh, massive envelopes of uh, cashier's checks ready to buy. And these are the obviously the hedge fund buyers. And they're not the dumbest guys in the room. They're actually the smartest guys, right? They are very, very smart at what they do. So what is it? Where's the big miss here? Where, why, are they, why, are they keep, why, why do we see them continue to double down, double down, double down on this model?
1: So, in you know, when when the idea came out in two thousand fifteen, I thought it was a good idea. Flipping was great. There were mar- there was margin in flipping at that time, um, and I think that perhaps may- maybe maybe it's the case that the the invest early investors had not experienced uh, the cyclicality of the flipping business that that we've experienced, and so. That an institutional platform that relies on transactions and relies on transactions at scale mm-hmm. um, is going to be able to make it through cycles and find margin when when the most you know gritty main street entrepreneurs are struggling to do so. Maybe they didn't you know maybe maybe they didn't appreciate that idea. By the way, maybe it's just they were riding the venture capital wave that really was a significant wave and then became a bubble, you know, by 2020, 2021, which is, by the way, when these companies IPO'd, right? So, like, if the early money gets in at a good valuation and then you can go, you know, you can exit and do an IPO at at a greater valuation... They, you know, maybe they made money, right? Like they didn't, you know, the business model isn't viable over a long period of time, but that doesn't mean that there's not a trade to make, right? Taking an idea and bringing it to the public market for the first time off of a lot of like enthusiasm and hype. So maybe they did make money. It's just the public market real, the the public market investors, you know, the, you know, my mom who, you know, who's, you know, who's, you know, reads an article and thinks that, hey, that's, that's neat. Um, Maybe she's just the sucker, right? Yeah. but uh, that idea has never sat well with me, so I've always been a, you know, hater. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're not a big fan of the—I uh, was shocked to see that uh, in 2021, uh, the iBuyer national market share uh, was only at about 1.3%. So we're not talking about, a, you know, these guys aren't capturing some massive amount of market share here. But that was about 70,000 houses— let's talk about 2021, because we were talking before we started rolling here, and in 2021, everyone made money in this business. If you could fog a mirror and find a deal, chances are you were going to make money on it. Really great chance of making it. Yet, for whatever reason, the iBuyer model they were they were still hemorrhaging money at that point
1: yeah there's there's tremendous home price appreciation and yet they even with that huge tailwind behind them that that idea that that huge home price appreciation couldn't overcome their general and administrative expenses associated with um you know with running the platform and so like i'm like you know every flipper who's listening to this knows that in 2021 if you just bought a house and just waited Six months. And the longer the longer it took you to do the rehab, the worse flipper you were in 2021. The more money you made because yeah. the market was going up so quickly, and yet the iBuyers couldn't couldn't pull out a profitable quarter during that period of time. It's you know it's some it's
0: some shameful stuff right there. I was speaking to a banker who will go uh, unnamed, but we were talking about sort of the the difference between the 2006 you know, 2006, five really felt a lot like 2021, right? Markets going up like a rocket. And he said, Craig, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it. I rolled up to a few of the houses that we had loans on and it was, they were all owned by the same guy. The guy was sitting up on the roof of the house. It was here in Baltimore, by the way, sitting on the roof of the house in a lawn chair, six pack of beer, sunning himself. And the banker says, there's no one working in the house right now. And he says, yeah, what do I care? I'll just wait another five, six, eight weeks, and the price of this thing is going up like you know five percent a month. What do I care? you know and so i the reason why i I bring it up is I spoke to him again, the same banker, and he feels like we're sort of in the, that that twenty twenty one period was sort of very similar where he just had a lot of lazy guys mm-hmm. that were just sitting around waiting for the appreciation play, and as many of you may know already appreciation is really the icing on the cake in this business it's the cherry on top you if you're if that's all you're betting on as a business model uh chances are you'll you'll at some point be in for a very rude awakening when the market shifts and i think that these iBuyers, buyers you know they want to they want to say that it's covid they want to say it's just people just aren't selling their homes it's the high interest rates but i would i would my My supposition is here is that they've bet on the wrong the wrong return they're betting on appreciation here, right yeah I mean the, if,
1: even with appreciation they weren't able to make it work and so you know there, there, I've heard arguments that hey we're going to make it up with adding title services, mortgage services and these ancillary ancillary sources of additional revenue are going to help you know really grab an increased increased margin and as a percentage of the flipping margin that actually is material. I just think that those are, in and of themselves, tough businesses. They are also competitive businesses. Um, titles a, t- tends to be a, you know, a very low-margin business. Mortgage is probably the most mature industry, one of the most mature industries in, in America. Um, and so that, that there's much outsized return to grab there is, is a little tough. Like, I, get, I, I, I accept it on some level. Is it enough to overcome the challenges of scale? No, I, I don't like it just I feel that the, you know the, the answer to that is no way, not not a chance. Okay. Um you know an, an interesting thing that um that also happened during the period you were talking about is that um I mean we were talking to to guys in our masterminds who are active in those in the markets that you're talking about and doing and and do a lot of volume there. Right. Um open door offer pad Zillow became uh Primarily, the first two became actually even a source of, of you know, an exit strategy for wholesalers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we were, they were selling not only to the public and private REITs, but even the iBuyers, you could get a deal and sell it to them if it fit, fit in their box. And it was also like you you can send them, you, you know, you go to their website, you type in the address, they give you a number. If they screw up to the high side... Give them a shot, you know. Give them thirty days and see if they can, you know, see if they can close this thing at the number on the high side. If it, if their offer's too low, then you just you know move on and you sell it to one of the public REITs. So, even even the nature of the the nature of the model, I feel like it, it like is ripe for adverse selection, right? Like they're they're using automated, that, uh, yeah. Like they're they're using automated valuation models to come up with offers. They have a lot, you know. They'll tell you ad nauseum about all the data that they're using to predict what's going on in the market. Um, all that stuff's untested frankly none of it bailed any of them out in 2022 right and everyone you know they had the best data in the world and 20 you know and powell decides to to move the country in a different direction and none of the models had were reading cnn or had any idea that like that this was you know going on and took that into consideration because clearly they've lost a tremendous amount of money so data is a wonderful idea I'm i'm actually big data guy. I think use of data in the industry is is a humongous competitive advantage and differentiator. Here, though, I think that there was an over-reliance on the models will save us. Uh, and they were ignoring uh, ignoring the, or, or they just didn't have as part of their platform the the local entrepreneur on the street. And so, yeah, so you can go on, since you can go on their website and get an offer immediately and... The employees of the company will take you through the system and close uh, you if if the if the automated valuation model number is too high well that deal may close right like so every every time that the AVM gets it wrong, they lose margin or don't make as much money as they thought they were going to do and every time that uh, it gets it right or is too conservative on the downside, you as the local real estate entrepreneur just go another direction so I just Think that that is you know that there's an opportunity for that to be gamed. I, I I saw it gamed right like anecdotally. A lot of the folks that we that we consider peers are we're, we're doing you know exactly that, um, and uh, and kind of laughing all the way to the bank. So um, it's you know the, the the flipping is a very very competitive business, right? Like it's and and it's become even more so, tremendously more so over the past fifteen years.
0: Extremely. Um, talk about um flipping as a model for the local guy. Historically, it's always been about a 20% margin business. And so,
1: yeah. Yeah, 20% annualized, I'd say like, you know, in good times it gets as high as 30 and what I consider like really lean times, you get down to the 10-15%. And in, a, in at that at those levels, I think that it's difficult, it's a, it's a tough risk-adjusted return just to only get 10-15% annualized for all the work and Inherent risk that goes into to doing a, a flip transaction, twenty to twenty five feels like a good annualized margin, um, and uh, so you know there, there's room in there for for a good operator who's adding value to the property, right? Um, and th- of course, that also varies by geography, right? So if you're doing a if you're doing a, a, a lighter rehab on a newer vintage uh, property, you're, it's not going to take you a full year. So maybe you're only got a ten percent margin, sure, but it's only going to take you six months. So that's actually a twenty percent annualized margin. Whereas go. if you're doing a larger rehab project, a full gut, maybe even new construction, that 20%, 25 percent number. Because it's gonna be 10, 12 months to exit between when you break ground to when you exit, um, that number still holds true. But for the for the activity of flipping, that that you know, that's that's kind of the back of the envelope that I use to, to kind of judge whether there it's there's an appropriate risk adjusted return. And when you see, if you, you look through the public, re- I'm a big public records nerd. So I'll go like, you know, poking around in public records and see what offer pad and open door and are um, you know are buying houses at and where they're actually exiting. In an up in the up market, they were looking for that you know 10-15% margin, which was tight, right? They were buying houses because they were paying more than the flippers were, sure. than, than the than the local guys were, right? That's how they got volume in the first place. Um, and then they got bailed out through home price appreciation. So they still exited at a 20 to 25, but it was because of the home price appreciation, not because of the core business model. At a core business model, they're Skinny margin flippers, and so what we saw in 2022 when the market is not going up, and actually in a lot of the markets that they that they were very active in, were have been down five, ten, maybe even fifteen percent in some of the West Coast markets and high dollar per square foot markets. Um, all of that margin is eroded, and then some. So they're they're right now they're selling houses at an absolute loss at a. At a at a nominal loss, yeah. in addition to the general administrative expenses that they are also still carrying. I'm sure they've done some cost cutting measures, but right now, you know, they're really kind of bleeding and bleeding hard. So there's a question right now as to whether they and they're trading at a, some of them. I mean, Offerpad six months ago was trading at a discount to cash
0: on yeah. the balance sheet. In, like in, fa- the, in fact, uh, they were uh, warned by the New York Stock Exchange that they would be delisted, delisted yeah, if it went below that. a dollar. Yeah,
1: yeah. And then they, so they, the, the equity investors doubled down on offer. Yeah, let's pad. talk
0: about that real quick. So, yeah, it, it, venture capital, by the way, has been the fuel of this business. But it's they've put in well over six billion dollars uh, in the last several years. And, uh, to your point of losing money on each transaction, I'm looking at a graph here. And while the graph is a little dated, um, in 2019, I buyer net loss per home over $60,000 in 2020, that number got a little bit better at exactly $60,000, $60, dollars per home. Yeah. So, um, and, and, uh, so, op- I'm sorry, Zillow was the worst, lost the most money. And they uh, got out. They eventually got out. They got out of the business. Um, the uh, open door was losing about $20,000 per house, per house. Um, so this idea that we can make it up in volume, never really seen that work on on a loss. But, and, uh, and now
1: we're in kind of this, like, you know, for at least the, the next, you know, the short to medium term uh, lower transaction volume environment. Um, you know, if we're going to make it up in volume and all of a sudden transaction volume is down 50% nationwide, like, ouch, you know, that's, that, that's tough. you know, if you, if you didn't sell to an iBuyer, you refied at three, three percent and now you're definitely not going to sell right for a long time. So like, at what point is this going to, is this like, are we going to hit this magical inflection point of profitability? I'm just, I'm just a big skeptic.
0: clearly. (laughs) So I came across quite a bit of content in researching for this episode. And a lot of it, Jack, was it's that content that you get that you, you wonder if the person who put their name on it is, even wrote it. And it's just it's that fluff that we hate. It's that it's that, hey, this sounds really good. And I can't imagine that Pete—that some you know average investors, the guys that do one, two, three real estate transactions a year, don't look at this and go, well, wait a minute. This was written by a guy who is the business director. Can I say it? No, I won't. But the person who wrote this article, we won't put them on on Spotlight. The person who wrote this article should really know better, and they should maybe go a little bit deeper in their analysis before they put it out there. But I'll just read quickly. It says here that um, in terms of using the iBuyers and their inventory as potential investments for, say, like buy and hold for you. And this gentleman says, uh, iBuying is another tool for investors, Jack, to add to their toolbox. Real estate investors, especially single-family rental real estate investors, like many people listening, and and fix-and-flip investors, like myself, can benefit from the iBuying trend, Jack, in three major ways. They can quickly find available investment properties across the country. That's one. Two... Open, it allows them to open uh, doors to invest in other geographical areas, and by working with iBuyers buyers and just simply going to their sites and looking at their inventory, you can buy properties in bulk with portfolio purchases in a perfect world. Real estate investors would have enough time during the day to drive around and search for <laughs> for potential investment properties, do their marketing, fly from city city to city to check out. Um, these listings. But that's in a perfect world, Jack. You, we can't expect real estate investors to do those kinds of things to find deals. So I just looked at this, Jack, as sort of like this crazy fluff piece. Again, it's it's that 70 miles wide and a half inch deep, giving people supposedly good information. How do you feel about that? Ken, is that a viable strategy to go to, say, you know open doors websites see their a thousand houses that they have strewn across the united states and say to yourself well i'm really going to pick up a sweet deal here yeah so you know not surprisingly
1: i, I struggle with that a lot right so i mean the the i buying model is to buy a property off market add some value to it and then sell it for 100 percent of retail to a homeowner on the mls and so if you're looking at that inventory, there's no, there's no discounts to investors. Um, you know, they're looking to, maybe you could save the commission, right? If you, t- if you toss the commission in there, but you could also do that buying straight off of the MLS. So, you know, if you've got an opinion on a market and you say, Hey, hundred percent of value today is still a good deal. And I want a turnkey finished property. And I'm just going to go buy it with a, you know, buy it with a DSCR loan and put a tenant in there. Um, I think you're going to struggle, you're really going to struggle to, to make the numbers work today with, with today's interest rates, but Hey, maybe you're just parking cash, right? And you want to just, you want some exposure to the Phoenix market and you're parking cash that holds as true. That advice holds as true for buying from iBuyers. It is for going on the MLS and you'll have more to choose from going on the MLS. So it doesn't seem like good investment advice, so to speak.
0: Look, I still think it's a business where, yeah, there's. I think there are a lot of people out here that are looking at, you know, the the market and they're saying, mm, I want to pull my money out of the market and maybe put it into some hard assets. I'll park some cash in a decent house, put a tenant in it, make a maybe a little bit of cash flow if you're lucky buying at retail. But it's still a business where we're finding deals um, that have decent margin in them, and I've yet to see any deals listed on the MLS. Um, that aren't full retail uh,
1: yeah. you
0: know I'm sure they're out there it's always a needle in a haystack that's what the the, the game is all about uh, mostly but um, this this whole piece here man I just really find it to be so disingenuous and just sort of like you know so indicative of what we see out there um, from people who should know way better yeah know? I think I think that there's just like
1: in general investors one of the reasons we created this podcast, right? Was in general investors can, if you Google something, you'll come across a lot of content, but it's a lot of very fluffy content, very surface level, not a lot of well thought out, you know, from a practitioner's point of view, Hey, I'm looking to like, not just place cash, right? Like it's no, I'm, I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm looking to like get a deal, right? Like that's, what's fun about the business. That's what makes the business sustainable is the ability to do that. And then you know, maybe you can even like as you scale your business, like build systems around doing that at some scale. That's how you make money, right? In a very competitive real estate investing business, which is what the you know, what America has become. Um, and it's and but the you know, but the marketing departments of a lot of these you know a lot of vendors, a lot of uh, com- you know companies who are trying to attract eyeballs are just spewing words to for for SEO purposes, not caring at all about, is it actually actionable, good content, right? Exactly. And I think that, that that ends up like for the for the newer investors, that ends up being a real challenge, right? Because you read and read and read your hour, your dozens and hundreds of hours into your research. And yet in your stomach, you know, I don't know shit about this business because I've been reading this fluffy crap. I've got, I've got dozens of hours of fluffy crap and I don't know how to do stuff. I don't know what the difference makers are going to be and as a result, you know you shouldn't pull the trigger, right? Because you know you're not prepared. And that's always like, follow your gut. That's a, that's like a pro, that is a inherent problem to getting started in the business. You can cons- if you consume everything that you read on the internet, you're you know there's this you just top out, and there's a, a real lack of actionable content and. Uh, you know opinions from people who have done it and know what works and what doesn 't work uh, from from their own pain and lost money. And uh, so that's something that we're trying to bring here in this podcast. So feel free to call us out, by the way, if you ever see us departing from that idea. We're, uh, you know, no egos here. It's just about, like, good content and getting people, you know, information they need to make their businesses better and
0: stronger. I'm not sure about the no ego thing, but we try (laughs) to take the ego out of it as much as possible. Look, man, I I think one of the, uh, a couple more points that I really want to make here um, first is, The industry, even though there's been a couple of large players that have gotten out of the business, it is not a business that appears to be going away anytime soon. In fact, it's evolving. And if you sort of look at the four quadrants, um, I didn't bring that graph with me here, but there's basically four quadrants that started off this whole thing. And it, it started with Zillow and sort of search where sellers would be, buyers and sellers would go on to Zillow to search. In fact, I think Zillow reported that they get like 70% of all traffic from buyers and sellers will go to Zillow um, at some point during the transaction to do a little research and figure out where they are. So Zillow is obvious. Yeah, exactly. It's it's still a, a, a site to find decent information. However, um There are these new players that are sort of coming in not from a search standpoint, but from sort of the um buyer seller and then putting the into- all the pieces of the transaction together to try to make incremental margin on the business and what i'm what I mean by that is so you've got companies like Orchard, Knock, and Homeward who are now they're not new but they've they're they're in the market um and they're trying to take title uh mortgage. And some of the other ancillary services that come along with the transaction, and put the, and make that part of what they do. And so, um, if you look at builders, for instance, builders get about seventy percent attach on mortgages. If you go buy a house, the builder says, "Hey, if you use this mortgage company, they get a small incentive," and obviously the builder gets a piece of that. That's I'm sorry, seventy five percent of the time, a home buyer or, or someone who's buying a brand new home will choose the builder's mortgage company 75% of the time, which obviously makes a little bit of bump for the builder. That's what these companies are thinking. If we can just, Jack, if we can just take all of those extra pieces of action that we're not getting, now we've got a real business model here.
1: Yeah, I like not to speak about those specific 3 companies because I don't know enough about each of their business models to say that I dislike them as a fundamental idea as much as I dislike offerpad and open door. <laughs> and I think that I think that each uh, my the, what little I do know about those companies, I think they're going after nicheier ideas and saying, "Hey, we're going to narrow this down to just a particular niche and there's some real margin in that niche." And so, you know, and I, I hope that they're successful with it.
0: Yeah. Um, well, unfortunately, I'll, I'll tell you quickly, I'm sorry. Um, Homeward laid off about 40% of their staff uh, late last year. Knock laid off an additional 40% of their staff. And Orchard has laid off about 23% of its employees in 2022. So not sure exactly yeah, how ve- the model's going.
1: Venture capital has been really uh, brutal. You know, venture capital funded companies have been really brutal the past, you know, 18 months, right? As uh, as that bubble is really kind of Hopped. Everyone's looking to raise money. They're going to raise money at lower valuations this time that they did. And I think there's still a lot of conversation, um, uh, about how venture capital fund funded companies that are not going to make it through many, many, many are not going to make it through the next, you know,
0: 12, 12 to 18 months. Oh my gosh. Tell me, uh, quickly about, uh, who was it? Genesis that was funding a company, um, Yes. Yeah, so
1: I, I, in my nerdy rabbit holes of, of doing public record research, uh, I was looking at OfferPads transactions and noticed that uh, actually I was no, 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 that's not true. I was looking at one of our competitors, Genesis Capital, who funds a lot of like uh, builders. They do a lot of West Coast um, lending as well. Is it essentially hard money? Yeah. It's, it's like, it's the, it's the lower end of, I mean, you know, from a cost to capital point of view, it's like the cheaper side of hard money, but sure. they, they're like big accounts, low, re- relatively lower LTC, fairly short term loans. Yeah. Yeah. Just fix and flip money. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Genesis did a, a, a tremendous amount of transactions, a lot of transactions with, uh, with OfferPad in, uh, third quarter, fourth quarter, first of, of 2022 and first quarter of 2023. Um, and this is when, when you mentioned when, when their stock was down below, you know, right at that dollar level mm-hmm. and cash, it seemed like they were, you know, they were willing to pay, you know, probably low teens APR for, for cash just to like have cash on hand. Um, and this was right after they had raised that $90 million of equity in this, you know, in this kind of like, you know, uh, to, 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 to bolster the company and get it through the, the, the end of 2022, mm-hmm. um. So that was interesting to see, right? Like even the, even the biggest guys are borrowing hard money, uh, to fund their flipping businesses. It was that brutal, you know, in the third, fourth quarter, um, which
0: had to compress margins significantly.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, with, with in that, if you, if you've got a good, if you've got that 20% margin, annualized margin model, you know, whether you borrow money at eight or 10 or 12 doesn't make or break a deal. Sure. Certainly you'd like to keep more of that in your pocket as the flipper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think in this case, it was almost kind of like insult to injury, right? Like they're selling these houses at a loss and your cost of capital is higher. Like that's, it's just, you know, it's just insult to injury. Uh, And they were only lending. Genesis was only lending on finished properties. Like the the renovations were done. The houses were all listed. Um, So it was very short term. So the APR was actually probably quite a bit higher than that even um, because they were only taking the, they, they weren't taking any construction risk. It was just pure. You could see it was purely about liquidity. Um, that they needed to raise some cash real quick, and Genesis said, "Well, if you give me, you know, real estate security, I can get you cash real." Yeah,
0: quickly. we'll lend you up to maybe 65% of the actual value of the house, not yeah. the, sort of the inflated hopeful value. So
1: yeah, it's exactly. It's a fairly safe loan for them. Yeah, the loans seem, all seemed fine. They seemed like good loans, um, and they're, I'm sure they're in the process of all being paid off right now. I didn't see any recent originations in the past couple months, but um, but it was you know interesting to see that even even these lo- you know the largest companies. You know, have cash flow crunches and need to go access liquidity, and the private lending. We're going to talk about this uh, in, a, in a segment in here soon. Is uh, and the private lending space is is that backstop to the banks right now, right? Like the the banks are not active in that space right now, um, and so certainly it's the case that Offerpad has ex- excellent banking relationships. But Genesis was the right answer for them at that point in time. So it was interesting to see that even at the institutional level.
0: Well, one of the things that we—the uh, the question I always love to ask here at the end—is why should you care? What do you care? Um, you know, these these companies are here. Uh, they've been here since 2014. They don't appear to be going away. Uh, in in fact, um, when you take a look at sort of all of the other—not look. It's one thing to look at the open doors, the, the the large companies, the i buyers, but it's all of the other companies, sort of in the i space now, the the mortgage lenders, the title companies, all of them all of them migrating to that. That, you know, I feel like the whole, you know, real estate transaction is changing drastically, right? Um, the way we the way we transact real estate, um, but and so maybe that's one reason why you should care and you should always keep your eye out to what you know. The, the larger money, the, the big money is doing, right? But one thing that we mentioned before we turned on the mics was um, this, this diversica- the diversification of revenue streams. Why, why these companies were very myopic in, in, in their approach to what they wanted to do. They were basically institutional wholesalers and they rode the market up and now they're riding it down, right? And so speak to that jack about how the average investor who's listening can maybe start to think about their business in a more diverse way can i just be a wholesaler jack can i just be a rehabber can i just be a landlord right we've always been told hey look focus on one thing and really be great at it and that's a great thing don't get me wrong but don't be surprised when that model doesn't work in a sideways market right so go ahead
1: yeah sure so um Real. everyone knows that real, everyone is, you know, common parlance to say that real estate's a very cyclical business. And generally when people are referring to that, they're talking about values. Um, You know, cap rates go up, cap rates go down um, over time. In the flipping business, there's this kind of like sub trend that happens where like we don't really care as much where if housing prices are going up or, or housing prices are going down. I mean, if they're going down, we care. Yeah, as long but as like, I'm
0: buying a great price and I can sell it at a better price, right? Like, yeah, and yeah, we're
1: we're in for 75 percent of value. So like my my, but my margin, you know, if in the if the market's coming down, it's not falling so quickly that like I'm going to lose money on that deal. I just might make a little bit less, right? So the way I think about the flipping margin, I'm sorry, flipping market, it, uh, cyclicality is about margins. So in, you know, in, so there are different points in time where flipping margins expand and then flipping margins contract. And so in a down market, your flipping margins are likely contracting, but then as real estate values are coming down, sellers get scared uh, because they see, you know, prices coming down and they start to capitulate and they start to let properties go. Now there's a there's an adjustment process for the seller, right? Like a, a very human like stages of grief Process to capitulating and finally deciding to just let the property go that you know that you need to sell. And then, so it's often right in like in the wake of a down market is when the flipping margins are actually the best yep. because the seller psychology has shifted and has the seller has capitulated and then you can go find a deal that's got those wider margins. And then margins will be good for a while, but then as real estate values increase, then, you know, people start talking at the cocktail parties about how I made money in real estate and other people start getting into the business and now you've got more competition. And though the top line properties may, you know, top line real estate values are still increasing, the as-is prices, the price of as-is houses goes up even faster because there's more competition. There's more demand for that as-is real estate, Um, you know, looking to make money off of it. And so you start to see those margins compress as we get to the top of a market. Um, and so that kind of like subtrend line is the one that I'm much more interested in even because it's, it's, it tends to be a little slightly counter cyclical or at least like, you know, has a, a maybe a 12 month lag to the overall real estate values. And and I think we're we're probably about, we're, we're, I think that we're entering a, a phase of that where money is more expensive right now. Real estate values have been down. Now they're stabilizing a bit. Houses are still quite unaffordable. That we haven't seen much in the past three, or, you know, three or four months. We haven't seen much additional home price depreciation. Haven't really seen that seller capitulation. Yeah, and I think that that seller capitulation has really just started. There was we, we, we experienced a little wave of it right at the beginning of the year, and then uh, and then mortgage rates uh, ticked up over the past. 30 days. And that's kind of cooled things a little bit, but we see, we see the top line, you know, the, 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 buyer market being extremely mortgage rate sensitive, but sellers starting to capitulate and realize, Hey, this isn't getting better soon. Uh, more if mortgage rates are going to stay at this 7% level for a long time, you know, what's the difference between selling today and selling six months from now or a year from now, I can't wait three years to get to the other side of this market. I need to sell in the next 12 months. So I might as well sell today. And so we're starting to see that seller capitulation
0: come into the market, which is great for flippers. Yeah, I was, uh, and and I think, you know, we, we're we speaking a lot about the residential market here, but I think the same thing could be said in in most asset classes right now, uh, multifamily. Uh, I've been looking at mobile home parks. There just hasn't been a tremendous amount of seller capitulation on price commensurate with the, you know, twice uh, twice the interest rate of what we would see about from about, you know, two years ago. And so you've got a lot of money that wants to be thrown at an asset, yet the buyers are still saying, well, wait a minute here, uh, you know, like... I still have to I, make money. I, yeah, yeah, I still got to make money on this thing. And I'm now paying twice uh, for my money of what I would have paid a year ago. Wait a minute here. I can't buy it at Two years ago, price right, yep. and so I really and so I was speaking with uh you know a guy who does a lot of financing for one of the larger uh, um, lenders in the mobile home park space uh, just last week, and he mentioned, yeah, you know, I think we might st- the, the sellers are starting to get a little bit more realistic, whereas before. You put your asset out on the market, you know, some, some guy comes along with a big bag of money and then another guy comes right behind him with a bigger bag of money. They're starting to see, wait a minute here, my stuff's sitting on the market a little bit longer. There's not just, there's not as many people interested. And I think that's what we're, the dam is breaking just a little bit. Right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, for example, like going back in time a little bit, the 2000, 13, 14, 15, 16 timeframe, like 2013 to 16. That timeframe was phenomenal for flipping, right? Right. It was, there was home price appreciation, but it was phenomenal because- the room wasn't that crowded, right? Like there was, there, there was, you could still get deals. Yeah. There
0: people were still, uh, had PTSD from 2012. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And, and so like, it was a great time to flip and we were doing a ton of flipping at that time. Um, because the
0: margins were still great. Let me ask you this in we, we, this diversification of sort of what we do, what the, our bag of tricks, could your business, could dominion have survived solely as a landlord, you know would, would would you have wanted to be just a landlord we
1: because- could never have become a landlord but for the other business models like we could we could never have gotten to 800 properties but for flipping and lending why just cash flow
0: and wholesaling. Uh, just just cash flow, um, the, because the even even with the cash flow coming off of eight hundred houses, which should be substantial.
1: Well, at eight hundred it is, but it, at a hundred at a hundred <laughs> it's not. Yeah, at a hundred it's nothing. At one hundred and fifty it's okay. Like it's like you, know, you can you know you don't have to work, but um, you know until your mortgages are paid off though, it's like there's some cash flow. Um, but we could never have paid for a platform to get to 800 houses, but for flipping and wholesaling and, and lending. And those, are, those, other, those other three activities are, are tax inefficient, right? You get taxed at ordinary, ordinary income, mm-hmm. but they produce cash on a current basis. And you gotta pay the bills. And, you, and if you're gonna do a refi and you get a, like an okay deal or you get screwed on an appraisal, you gotta refi and maybe you have to come to the refi table with, with some money. Well, that money's got to come from somewhere. Right. Yeah. Um, and so we always have, we always integrated, we've always wholesaled. We have always flipped. We have always tried to add rentals. We've always lent and we have dialed those up and down based off of the dynamics that I'm talking about. Right. If there's a bunch of margin and flipping, we'll be we dialed that up and started flipping more houses as more players got in in the 2017 18 time frame. By 2018, I was like, dude, this is a freaking competitive, uh, or 2018 and 19. I was like, this is a competitive freaking flipping market right now. It is hard to find a deal that's got margin. We were seeing our borrowers doing much larger rehabs. We ourselves started doing some ground up construction on infill lots. Which,
0: by the way, in 2016, I remember distinctly sitting in your office and you said, We'll never be. We'll never build from ground up. Yeah,
1: I remember yeah. it distinctly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and yeah, and four years later, that's exactly what we were doing because I couldn't do any ki- kitchen. And, I couldn't make any money doing any kitchen and uh, mm-hmm. kitchen and bath paint and carpet rehabs, but somehow the eye buyers are right. right. Um, I couldn't figure it out. Yeah, the
0: local guy on the ground who was buying houses uh, in the market couldn't yeah. figure it out. So the, uh, so, you know, 2018 and 19, it becomes
1: a much lower margin, uh, flipping business. And so we dialed up wholesaling and then COVID hit 2020 and 2021. And though it was also a good time to flip, the money was so cheap, right? Like the, the debt you could borrow was so cheap. We were like, Hey, yes, we could make some money flipping houses right now, but we are never going to see this, the you know, debt levels of these levels. We were borrowing money below 4%. Like 30-year fixed with a DSCR product, it was phenomenal, and so we just said keep everything as a rental because, you know, y- yes, I'm I'm, a, I'm buying it at a seven cap, six and a half cap. It's like a little, you know, it's not getting me super excited, but I've you know, relative to what we're used to seeing in terms of cap rates, but I've never, I've also never borrowed money at four percent before. Sure, uh, it's always been six and seven percent. So we, you know, we, we we're trying to follow. Not only the top line housing prices, but what's going on in, hey, what's the wholesaling margins? Look, what do wholesaling margins look like right now? Are there a bunch of newbies coming into the market that we can wholesale to? And so it's, you know, we can make 40 on the, I can you know, and this was the math. We could make 40 flipping it, but we can make 20 wholesaling it, wholesaling the same house to like that, to that guy who we've never seen before at the steps. Let's just take the easy 20. The quick nickel over the slow dime. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, With no brain damage. So we're much more interested in following, you know, the, the margins of each of those business models as opposed to just what hey, what are real estate values doing? Like that's a much less interesting conversation than wholesale margins are widening out, flipping margins are tightening, and and what we're seeing right now is a little bit of the uh, the opposite. So wholes- in the past couple of years, wholesaling was great, adding rentals was great. Right now because of the higher cost of capital, there are relatively, there's still, it's still very competitive, but there are relatively fewer people that you're competing with. So the wholesaling margins have gotten a little bit tighter and we're starting to shift more. And the, on the rental side, our cost of capital is much higher. So this, the, 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 you know, the debt service coverage ratio isn't as good. The margins on owning the rental aren't as good. And so we're going from, we're shifting properties out of the rental business plan into the flipping business plan uh, because that top line, you know, we are seeing some seller capitulation, and that top line price hasn't moved all that much in the affordable price points. And so we're we're kind of and we always do this every every year or so, year eighteen months. We'll kind of readjust our pipeline and say, "Hey, let's wholesale." You know, we, we would we would say, "Hey, let's wholesale more and flip less and add a bit more rentals." And now we're ch- we're moving those dials and we are wholesaling a bit less, flipping a bit more, and adding a lot less rentals. Uh, and I, that, I that's
0: what we're seeing. Where, where we think the easier money is right now. Yeah, I don't want to break that down into something so simplistic as as you being opportunistic. Because I think you're, I think the thinking behind what you do when you for, sort of move those levers is a lot deeper than, oh, this is the opportunity, right? Like, but, 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 I mean, be honest, that's that's you're you're taking a look at what the what the market is giving you, which we w- which we should all be doing, and you're building a model around that, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. And, but you have, have, you have to have you have to have you have to have like you know, you have to have all those tools in your bag, right? exactly. And if you're just one thing, well, then if you're a flipper, then you know. Then every, you know, if you're a hammer, then everything's a nail, right? Like, yeah, I, then you got to flip every single thing, but you live or die by that cycle. And if it's a low margin cycle, you might die by it. And when I say die, I mean, I mean, go, you know, go out of business, like literally run out of cash and have to shut, shut down.
0: And we know plenty of guys who that has happened to who were some really smart guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I was talking with, a, with an old friend, uh, just yesterday, as a matter of fact, Gary Boomershine. Um, and his whole philosophy, love gear. Um, uh, his whole philosophy has always been when he takes a look at a real estate deal, uh, super creative guy, very smart, but he says, look, is it a cash now? Is it a cash flow? Is it a cash later? I don't necessarily need to wholesale everything. If I've got the cash now, I might want to take this and make it a rental. I might want to take this property and uh, rehab it and sell it. And I think that, man, I just, I just think, uh, we are living in a time Jack where, um, we need to take a look at the four returns that real estate provides cash flow, uh, you know, amortization, tax advantages, and sort of appreciation, and always make appreciation, like I said, the fourth one, not the first one. Mm -hmm. I'm going to buy because I know the market is going up. No, 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 you don't know that it's always going up. You should really take a look at those other things and put it into sort of the holistic, what do I need now? And train yourselves, like Jack has, and the best operators in the business has, of putting that tool into your quiver, right? Like I'm not just going to relegate myself to ordinary income. I'm going to sell something, make 20,000 on it and have to pay some massive tax hit. No, this time I'm going to hold on to this property and I'm going to learn how to be a great operator as a landlord, right? Or as a, as a rehabber or as a multifamily guy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, it's, um, how do we tie a bow up with the i buyers here, Jack? And sort of uh yeah. Yeah, I think that um you
1: know it, it's going back to that having different understanding that there are the, the different that the real estate cyclicality applies to different business models, and there are different ways to monetize single-family real estate. You can you can wholesale, you can flip, you can add rental properties, uh, you could lend. I'm sure you have people listening to this have uh, you know a, a nest egg built up. Lend. Sometimes the debt mm. is be- being it's better to be the debt than the equity, right? In a tight env- in a in a in a competitive flipping environment, for example, where. Your, your, where your, your margin get, on flipping gets squeezed down to 10%, 15%, and you can put out debt at 10%, 15%, why wouldn't you rather be the debt than the equity? Like the, the equity is doing a lot of work and taking a lot of risk for not, whole, not a whole lot of margin there.
0: It's so funny. As, you, as, we've, as this episode has gone on, I, I keep hearing the words of my mentors, including you, uh, Fred, and others, that you know, it's always good to be the bank. Always good to be here. Yeah, some, Sometimes in 2021, it wasn't that great to be the bank because
1: money was so cheap. <laughs> but uh, but now we're entering a phase of the business where liquid. There's a liquidity premium, right? It's 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 li- literally, and that's the w- the way we would talk about it, right? Like there's the um, there's a, the underlying index of like the baseline. You know, what's the five year trade, You know, what's the what's the 30 day uh, so at right now? Uh, right? Okay,
0: I right, slow down. Thirty days so far. Have you ever heard of thirty days so far, yeah, Rachel? People, everyone who's yeah. <laughs>
1: all right, come on. So, so that's just that's just the index that replaced LIBOR. So if you want to borrow money for thirty days, that's that's the that's the index that you follow. Couldn't
0: but, have said LIBOR. We all know
1: LIBOR, but now they phased out LIBOR. I had no idea. You're not going to see LIBOR anymore, and in no more of your loan documents will you see LIBOR. It's and ninety
0: nine percent of the audience learned something new today. It's the secured overnight funding rate. Got
1: it. Um, or yes, yeah, secured overnight liquidity. Funding rate. And uh, so, anyway, so you've got that underlying index, and then you have a, a risk premium, right? And those are usually the two components of of your cost to capital. Sure. You know, more and you know the riskier the stuff that you're doing, the more that the lender is going to charge you for that. Well, today, because there's, because cash is at such a premium right now, there's now also a liquidity premium on top of that. Just, you know, and, and when there are fewer lenders in the room, you see that liquidity liquidity premium pop into the math too. And that's a, chun- that's a chunk right now of why we're seeing higher rates. It's not just because lenders are perceiving more risk. It's also because they're like, cause I got cash and you don't. And there's not a whole lot of folks in the room right now who do. And so I'm just gonna charge a premium just cause I can. And that's a thing that's absolutely going on right now. We're going to talk about opportunism, opportunism in the private lending space reemerging. And there's a lot of trends or there's a lot of like, indications of that right now in uh, the next episode. But, um, so that, but that's something to take into consideration when you're, as a real estate investor, are deciding what to do you know, over the course of the next couple of years, you get a lot of skills, right? If you know how to operate single family real estate, you can wholesale, you can flip, you can add rentals, you can lend on it short term, you can lend on it long term, you can sell turnkey rentals, you can buy turnkey rentals. And every, you should think about all of those things and decide at any given time, which combination you think the sweet spot is right now and set your platform up, set your systems and processes up to be able to pivot between those Otherwise, you find yourself being a one-trick pony, and you're riding the cycle. You're riding the wave of wherever that cycle is right now. And those, on, on those six things I just said, they do not run in lockstep. They all run kind of countercyclical to each other. So it is absolutely our belief that there are. The best business models to be in at a given time, and they change every eighteen to twenty-four months. What sure. combo you should be spending your energy and your 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 resources, you know, where you should be allocating your energy and your time
0: in your money. That sounds like a great topic for an upcoming episode Let's on do how that. to sort of pivot in, uh, in between different tools in your in your uh, quiver, right? Yeah. Um, so look, uh, I buyers here to stay. Um, obviously a Maybe. business, yeah, unless right. they run out of cash, right? <laughs> uh, it's, uh, and, and I think the point of all of this was, uh, you know, probably not the most sound business model when it was launched, um, with a lot of capital, um, and a very myopic one at that, in that they sort of got caught in a bad business model in a sideways market and the same thing could happen to anyone listening to this podcast. Um, and so that's, that's where the rubber meets the road for me, Jack, is that, you know, how do we not get caught in a market by having more tools in the toolbox? Right. Yep. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Well, I hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, If you want to check out the show notes, go to realinvestorradio.com forward slash notes. We'll wrap it up here. I'm Craig Fuhr. I'm Jack Bevere. All right. And we'll see you soon. Take care.